this morning, for all of us who consider ourselves to be believers, for all of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Christ and are gathered this morning for that purpose, we find ourselves in the midst of one of two realities. Either we are fools or either we are the recipients of a wisdom divinely given. And I say that, and when I say that, what I mean is, is that we are either fools for having laid our lives on the cross, for having, indul- having uh, willingly embraced a life of self-denial, having put ourselves to death in this life, living for another life, living for another city. Or we are divinely wise. Wisdom only gained through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit among people that we, our eyes are actually open to see the truth. Our dead hearts now resuscitated, placed anew in our chest, and now we know that this life is brief. This life is fleeting, and it is merely an investment in the next life that is to come. Now the reason that I say all of that is to correct an unfortunate and misguided apologetic that I find often among Christians today. Often among Christians today, I hear there is an ever-increasing number of atheists, an ever-increasing number of what we would call the nuns, that if you're checking boxes on what your religious preference is, there is an increasing number of nuns, those who would be secularists, those who would find themselves leaning more toward modern science than toward faith. And I hear an increasing number of Christians that are exasperated in conversation with the nuns, exasperated in conversation with the atheists, having had conversation, ultimately coming to the conclusion that says, well, if I'm right, then what did it cost me? But if you're right, what does it cost you? It costs you, and the the inference being that it cost them their eternity while it cost them nothing. But brothers and sisters, as well-intentioned as that might be, I want you to understand that is foolishness this morning. That that apologetic is foolishness, it's ineffective, and it will win no one to Christ. It's such an inglorious picture of who Jesus even is. And the reason that I say that is because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.32. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, if you'll remember when we preached through 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says... That if the dead are not raised, let us eat or drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if we were to interpret Paul, what Paul is saying is, is that if this is all that there is, if Jesus and the gospel are not true, if God is not the transcendent one over the universe, and if God is not offering us relationship with him forever, then we should live as however we wanting to, satisfying the flesh, satisfying every appetite that we have. Because to live a Christian life is in fact a loss. It is foolish. We are fools to live this life if it's not true. Because the Christian life requires you to put yourself to death. It requires you to deny yourself of the things that you want. It requires delayed gratification in so many senses of the word. And if you commit to that life and none of this is true, you have given up and sacrificed and lost the only thing that you had that was of any value, your life. You've lived by a moral standard that is arbitrary and invented. 
You see, this morning, what I want you to understand is that it matters who's right. It matters who's right. It matters whether it's the secular atheist that's right, or it's the Muslim that's right, or it's the Mormon that's right, or it's the Christian that's right. It matters. As Moses was preparing to move the people of God into the promised land of Canaan, this was his message to them. They had come out of the land of Egypt where there were many, just a plethora of gods that they had seen worshipped. And they were going into the land of Canaan that had an equal number of gods. And the temptation was going to be for the people of God, and they in fact would give in to it. The temptation was going to be that they would take a little bit of this God, and a little bit of this God, and a little bit of this one, while trying to hold on to their God, thinking that in the process they covered all of their bases. But the reason that Moses writes for us Genesis, and even more specifically, Genesis chapter 1, is he wants us to understand that we must choose who is right. Just as Elijah told the false prophets in 1 Kings 18, this morning I tell you, choose this day who you will serve. If the Lord is God, serve him. If science is God, serve it. If Baal is God, serve him. Turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Should be at the right very beginning of your Bible, so find the table of contents and turn right. Stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to spend the next four weeks or so in a break from Matthew um, preaching through Genesis are preaching through parts of Genesis as you are doing the same in your Bible study groups on Sunday morning. So we'll read the first 25 verses this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two greater lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of heavens 
to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. As we prepare to spend a few weeks in Genesis, one of the things that I want us to be understand is exactly the purpose of the book that we have. The book of Genesis is primarily not a science book. The book of Genesis is primarily not a, uh, an organization of a bunch of biographies. The book of Genesis is not primarily a history book, though I believe admirably it fills, a lot, it fills in a lot of those types of information, accurately so. But first and foremost, for us to understand the book of Genesis and for us to interpret the book of Genesis rightly, we have to understand what it is. Genesis is first and foremost and primarily a theology book. A book that helps us lay a foundation about who God is and who God intends for us to be and the purpose for all of this that we have around us. And so for that purpose, and because time is limited, I'm not going to engage a lot of the scientific discussions, though you can go onto our SoundCloud, and I did that on a Wednesday night um, probably a year, year and a half ago, and you can go onto our SoundCloud and you can listen to me talk about evolution and the age of the earth and all of those things. But that is not our primary purpose this morning. The primary purpose of preaching is to go to the intent of the text and to lay that bare for the people. So that's what we're going to do, and the intent of the text is to teach us something about God, to teach us theology. Now I have essentially two points. This is a hard passage to preach as you might understand and so I really want to just tell you on the front side that I essentially have two points that I want you to get. Two things, two realities, two truths that I want you to hold on to. They're quite simple. The first is is that God is the eternal creator of the universe. God is the eternal creator of the universe. And the second is and he is infinitely glorious. God is the, in, the in, is the eternal creator of the universe and God is infinitely glorious. When Genesis begins in verse 1, it begins in the most subtle, straightforward, matter-of-fact way that it could begin. If you were to go and you were to read creation accounts that were contemporary to the writing of Genesis and you were to read the Babylonian account or you were to read uh, many of the Mesopotamian accounts, what you would hear is you would read about uh, these battles among the gods. There would be these cosmic battles in which they were all fighting and battling one another for supremacy. But Genesis doesn't even acknowledge that. Genesis just right out of the gate says, and God. In the beginning, God. No cosmic battles. 
no fights, no struggles for control, no wondering about what to do, no, you must have understanding of this before. On the front end, all it says is, in the beginning, God. You need to understand that what Moses is doing in writing in that way is, first of all, he's writing all of those wrongs, all of those false accounts. But he is forcing us to make a decision on the first line of the Bible. When he writes, in the beginning, God, he is drawing a line in the stand. He is confronting us, causing us to come face to face with God himself to say, will you believe it or not? Will you believe that God was in the beginning or not? Will you bring yourself underneath him or not? Will you have faith or will you not have faith? The whole of the Bible understands and carries forward a presupposition that you believe that God is God. That you believe that God is real and that God is there and that God, in fact, did make everything. That's why you cannot understand anything in the Bible if you do not understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Everything in the Bible expects and understands from Genesis to Revelation that you understand the first three chapters of the Bible. It's the, it's the bedrock of Scripture. And Moses is being very forthright in the way that he's writing this. There is no doubt in our minds who the main character of this book is going to be. 35 times. 35 times in the first seven days of creation, he mentions the name of God and no other name. 35 times. This book is not about Moses. And this book is not about David. And this book is not about Paul. This book is not about some disciples. This book is not about the nation of Israel. This book is about God. He is the main character throughout. And so Moses, in the beginning, is drawing the line in the sand and saying, what will you do with him? How will you respond to him? When he tells us that he exists and the way that he phrases it, he is telling us that God exists eternally. Exists eternally. Again, he says, in the beginning, God. In other words, this is the beginning of time, right? This is the beginning of the creation. This is the beginning of everything. And what he is letting us know is there was someone who preceded everything. There was a time in which there were no dinosaurs. There was a time before there was an ocean. There was a time before there were Himalayas stretching out miles above the earth. Matter of fact, there was a time before there was time. And then God was. And God is. And God will be. That God is eternal. He is an eternal being. We are not eternal. We are immortal. We are never eternal. So I, this is just an aside, and this is only because it came up in my house this weekend. I'm trying to teach Gracie to, to distinguish between eternal and immortal. And that's not an easy conversation to have with a three-year-old, by the way. Because she'll ask about a picture, and she'll say, where was I? And I will say, well, you didn't exist yet. And she said, well, I was in heaven with God. No, you were not in heaven with God. You are not eternal. God is eternal. You are immortal. You will live forever from now forward, but you are not. So don't say that to your children. Don't tell them that they were in heaven with God because in the beginning was whom? God. There was a time in which there was no you, and there was a time in which there was no Gracie, and there was a time in which there was no me. The world doesn't revolve around us. Remarkable as it may seem. 
That's just good theology. It's just looking out for you and your kids. But before there was time, there is God. God is not in heaven wearing a watch. God doesn't have a digital clock on the back of his throne room. He exists outside of time. He transcends time. He looks down into time, right? That God is still in yesterday, in today, and already in tomorrow. You see, the way we think about things, we think about things chronologically, right? That yesterday was yesterday, and today is today, and, yes, and tomorrow is tomorrow. That we remember what happened yesterday, we are living out what is happening today, and we are anticipating what might happen yesterday. But God does not exist chronologically. God exists simultaneously. God doesn't view the world chronologically the way we view the world. God views the world simultaneously. He looks down into time, and he sees yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at the same time in the same way as we see right now. Now, that's one of those things about God that just makes you go, right? This leaves you dumbfounded. Because we have no ability to wrap our minds around that. We have no ability to wrap our minds around the reality that God is eternal and God sees everything simultaneously. But let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, it's good news. It's good news. Because here's what it means that God exists eternally, that God exists outside of time. It means that God is not a reactionary God. We are reactionary people, aren't we? We get a diagnosis and we react. Someone we love dies and we react. Our boyfriend breaks up with us and we react. Our wife leaves us and we react. We win a million dollars and we react. We are healed of cancer and we react. Our children rebel and we react. We live in fear of the reaction that might come tomorrow, don't we? We live in fear of the news that might come, that might cause us to react in a way that is fearful, that react in a way that is confused, to react in a way that is utterly perplexed and at a loss for words. But God is not reactionary. God already knows what's going to happen tomorrow. God already sees what's coming down the road. God does not stand from his throne. And I've told you before, there is no pacing in heaven. God sits on his throne, reigning over the cosmos, knowing what's to come. God doesn't react, he wills. And when the tragedy of tomorrow comes, it is the fulfillment of his sovereign decree, and he knows exactly how it's all going to work together for our good and for his glory already. There's no reactions in heaven. God is not a reactionary God. You see... The way that Moses writes this when he says in the beginning, the word beginning there is almost always throughout the canons of scripture paired with the word end. The word beginning there actually assumes that there's going to be an end. It's the same word we read in Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation chapter 22, what does Jesus, how, how does Jesus refer to himself? He says, I am the beginning and the end. Right? Here's what Moses wants us to see. That our God being eternal, our God being the God that is not reactionary, our God that doesn't react but instead wills, our God that doesn't see things chronologically but simultaneously, that our God stands above all of it and that he sees the end from the beginning. That just as the universe, as John says, was created through the word, through Christ, that it will be fully consummated in Christ, who is the beginning and the end in Revelation 22. That in other words, God already knows how this is going to play out. 
And because God can see the end from the beginning, we can rest and we can be comforted and we can take a deep breath knowing how all of this is going to end. God is going to win the war. God is going to secure his people. His people are going to rest with him eternally, experiencing his loving kindness, experiencing the the inheritance that was supposed to only be for Christ. It's going to be ours, and we can be assured of the gospel, and we can be assured of the end, and we can persevere through struggle knowing that our God is the God that sees the end from the beginning. That Jesus is the beginning and the end. He was there in Genesis just as he was there in Matthew, just as he was there in Revelation. Isn't this comforting for us? For all of us who are reactionary people. For all of us who respond to news and respond to information. Isn't this good news? Think about what this means. This means that when God saved you, he already knew everything you were going to do. Everything you were going to do. He already knew not just about the sins that you had committed... He knew about every sin, every wicked thought, every wicked intention that you were ever going to have. And you know what he said? I'll take you anyway. I'll save you anyway. I'll love you anyway. Brothers and sisters, there's no sin that's coming in your life that's ever going to break fellowship between you and God. There's no sin coming in your life that is going to cause God to stop loving you. There's never going to be any sin that's coming into your life that's going to cause God to let go of you with his grip. No, he knew what was coming when he saved you. He knew who you were when he delivered you. He already knew what was coming and he loved you infinitely. He could not even love you more and he certainly will never love you less. God saw the end from the beginning. And then there's just the realities of life and the hardships of life and the struggles of life. How in the world can a human being make it? How in the world can a person survive? The only way we can survive the chaos of earth, the only way that we can survive the violence of sin, is to know that one day God's going to fix it. That God, having sent Christ, having already promised us our redemption, that is going to make the redemption of ourselves and all of creation complete in Christ in Revelation when the beginning and the end returns. The hope that we have, the comfort that we have is rooted, fundamentally so, in the eternity of God. What I also want you to understand is that he is the eternal source of everything. So we see he exists... He exists eternally, and he exists as the eternal source of everything. Now, that sounds so fundamental, but I want you to stay stay with me for a second. That sounds so elementary, so simple, right? But this is the question of our day. Source is the question of our day. You see, the first law of thermodynamics requires that there is an eternal source. Not just a source, but an eternal source. The first law of thermodynamics says that you cannot create or destroy energy. That energy can only change forms. It's never created or destroyed, right? You learn that in just elementary science. What does that, think about what that means. 
That means that behind everything, there must have been a source that lasted forever. There must have been a source of energy. There must have been a a resource. There must have been a, a source of power. There must have been a source of wisdom. There must have been a source behind everything that got all of that started. If if energy can't be created and energy can't be destroyed, there must be a source undergirding all of that, right? You see, modern science is ill-equipped to answer the question of source. It can't do it. They, they want to talk about a probiotic soup that all of us come from after billions and billions and billions of, of mutations that eventually we turn from this, this probiotic soup into these wise creatures that can build skyscrapers and 747s that fly across oceans. Well, that's fine, but where did the soup come from? How was there an earth there for, the, for this to even exist in to begin with? Proponents of the Big Bang Theory say that everything that we exist is the result of a cataclysmic and cosmic explosion, or an implosion perhaps, where everything comes together, maybe inside of a black hole, and it all came together and caused this huge and utter uh, uh, explosion that brought everything into being. And it just so happened that it all revolves perfectly around the sun, and it just so happens that all of the ecosystems of Earth are well balanced. Well, fine. But who set into motion the explosion? Who, who, set in, who, who put the black hole there? Where did that come from? Where's the source? You see? You see, the, the, the first law of thermodynamics means that nothing plus nothing cannot equal everything. Fundamentally so. Nothing plus nothing cannot equal everything. There must be a source behind it. There must be a power behind it. Moses tells us what it is. More importantly, Moses tells us who it is. Who is the source behind everything? In the beginning, God. And how did all of it come to be? What did God use to make the earth? What did God use to make you and I? What did God use to make all of the animals? He used absolutely nothing. He spoke. And the efficacy of his word, he spoke, and all of creation came into existence. And the sun adorned the sky, and the mountains protruded from the seas, and the stars painted across the heavens. The water cycle began, and the oxygen cycle started, all of it at the speaking of the word of God. God is the source. God is behind all of this. God is the energy that creates all of the other energy, just changing forms. The Hebrew word used in Genesis is the word bara. Throughout the whole, God, the whole canon of Scripture, it only has one subject, God. It's contrasted with the Hebrew word asa. Asa means to, to take what is already there and to reshape and to reform. But bara means to make, to ultimately even make out of nothing. And so what we would call this historically is this is creation ex nihilo. God speaking and creating from nothing. See, God didn't have a pile of rocks and take that and form Mount Kilimanjaro. God didn't have several tons of sand that he didn't know what to do with and decide that he'd put a patio down in Florida. God spoke, 
and ex nihilo, from absolutely nothing, from the source, the eternal source of the universe, he spoke, and all of it came to be. You see, the burden of proof this morning is not on those who have faith in an intelligent designer. Every civilization up until the last couple hundred years always defaulted toward looking at the creation. As Paul says, knowing it calls us into account and knowing there is someone greater that put all of this together. Now the burden of proof rests firmly on the shoulders of those who say it is some way other than intelligent design that put all of this together. I have no idea how it became the intellectual, uh, intellectually elite thing to do to deny the blatantly obvious. But brothers and sisters, this morning I'm telling you, there had to have been a source. And the source is in the beginning God. It's the only logical conclusion. And if God made it. And if God provided everything for it, and if God built it, then God owns it. See, Genesis 1-1 tells us something else about God, that God is the Lord over all of this. That if he is the one that made it, the universal law of ownership says, if you provide the materials and you build it, you own it. God owns the earth. And God owns everything in the earth. Every person that ever has walked, is walking, or will walk the earth. God calls us into account, saying there is enough around to see. How could you not know, Paul says. This morning, the answer the question that's confronting you as Moses draws this line in the sand for us is, will you believe or not? Will you submit to his lordship or not? Will you embrace his ownership or not? If he is the one that creates and he is the one that assigns purpose, the only way you are able to thrive as a human being is according to his good purposes and according to his design in submission to him. This morning the creation is calling you to submission. Submission to the source. Submission to the God who knows the beginning from, or the end from the beginning. But I want you to see that God is not only the eternal creator of all things but that God is infinitely glorious. Oh the creation speaks of his glory. We could talk over it. We could talk for weeks just on seeing the glory of God from Genesis chapter 1. So I, we're not going to cover it all, but I just want to cover three ways I think we see the glory of God in Genesis chapter 1. The first thing that we see is that our God graciously speaks. He graciously speaks. You notice that? Verse 3. And God said, verse 6, and God said, verse 9, and God said, and God said, verse 11, verse 14, on and on and on. And God said, there is an emphasis that this God is a speaking God. Now what I want you to understand is that his speaking is incredibly gracious. Did you know that God never had to say anything to us? God never had to utter a word to us. He could have remained in cosmic silence. He owned the world. There was nothing that we could do about it. There was nothing that we could say about it. There was no reason that he had to reveal or disclose himself to us. God speaks only because of the nature and character of God. That God is good and God is loving and God is gracious. And by his grace, God revealed himself to us. By his grace, God opened his mouth and spoke to us. He spoke to us through his prophets and he speaks to us through his word and he's spoken to us in countless other ways over the course of the generations. 
God speaks to us because God wants us to know him. Think about the grace of that sentence. God speaks to us because God wants us to know him. Our God is a knowable God. He is not distant. He is not indifferent. He is not, uh, he is not some, some cosmic clockmaker that builds the clock and winds it up and just lets it tick. No, God wants us to know him and be right with him and have relationship with him. I believe in verse 3 when it says, And God said, I believe this is the first glimpse we have of the goodness and grace of God in all of the Bible. That God speaks. That God self-reveals. Our God, brothers and sisters, is not an indifferent God. He cares about what happens to us. He cares about whether or not we're in relationship with him. He cares about whether or not we understand who we are and whose we are. He cares about that we understand our significance and our insignificance. He cares about that we know our purpose and that we understand how our purpose plugs into his purpose. He cares about all of those things. And we know that because he has told us. Because he has spoken to us. Don't take for granted the gift of grace that your Bible is. Don't take for granted the gift of grace it is that God spoke to you. There are people all over the world right now worshiping and bowing down to silent gods. And our God speaks. Not only does he graciously speak, but he wisely purposes. He wisely purposes. We see his glory in that he wisely purposes. Notice how purposeful every statement in Genesis chapter 1 is. Every bit of the creation is very intentional in its design. Think about even the way that Genesis is constructed, right? In the first three days, days one, two, and three, what does God do? He forms the earth. In days four, five, and six, what does God do? He fills the earth. He forms it, and then he fills it. There's order here, right? Then you think about even, you can do a correlation between day one and day four, day five and day six, or day, I'm sorry, day Three and day four, day, <clears throat> day one and day four, day two and day five, day three and day six. In day one, he creates the light. In day four, he creates the light bearers. In day two, he forms the skies and he forms the waters. And in day uh, five, he creates the birds to fly in the skies and the uh, fish to swim in the oceans. In day three, he creates multiplying vegetation, multiplying sustenance. And in day six, he creates the animals and the humans to eat it. That our world is one that complement, everything complements one another and sustains one another. Think about that. You have what you need. You breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide, and the plants breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. Is that an accident? You're going to tell me there's not a designer? We have all this water on the earth that gets sucked up into the sky, filtered, and then rained down. You're going to tell me that's an accident. It it comes out of rocks, and through the, the rocks, the water actually filters itself as it goes through the ground. Is that an accident? No, behind it all, there is a wise purposer for all things. Someone putting them together brilliantly. Someone 
piecing all of this together for his good will and his good purposes according to his sovereign power and the decree of his word. He speaks it and there it is. The intricacies of our ecosystems and the, the sustainability of the cycles and the realities of nature and the orbiting of planets all speak to the wisdom and the glory of God. One day... I read this week that Isaac Newton, who believed in intelligent design, was in his lab. And he had in his lab this uh, scale model of the solar system. And it was built out of cogs and belts and these little balls. And they, they actually rotated on, their, on an axis around the sun the same way that the planets of our solar system ro- rotate on the sun. And, and they, would, they were self-sustaining. And it would just perpetually, they, they would move. And one day, he's working in his lab, and a friend comes by that was the denier of intelligent design. And he comes and he says, uh, what a marvelous device. Who built it for you? And it goes that Sir Isaac Newton never looked up and only said, nobody. The man perplexed looks back at Isaac Newton and says, what do you mean, nobody? He says, there was just a room, and it had gears, and it had balls, and it had cogs, and it had wheels, and somehow it just all came together and rotating perfectly on its axis. Obviously showing the man the foolishness of his view and the foolishness of his perspective. What I want you to understand is that if you believe anything less than a designer, then you are illogical. And it requires so much more faith for you to believe what you believe than it does to believe that someone put this thing together, the source of all things that built it. And he is glorious. He is glorious. He didn't have to give every human being a unique smile and a unique fingerprint, did he? But he did it just because he could, just because he wanted to, just because he was capable. He didn't have to give us a sun that goes up and down and millions of miles of rotation. He didn't have to do that. He just did it. He didn't have to create an oxygen cycle. He just did it. In his order, in his wisdom, we see his glory. Finally, I want you to see that he is utterly and supremely praiseworthy. He is utterly and supremely praiseworthy. The God that made everything. The God that speaks in ex nihilo. Everything comes to be. The God that is the source of all things. The God that puts into place all of these orders and systems. He is utterly praiseworthy. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. One of the things I love about Genesis chapter 1 that really never sat with me until this week is that Genesis chapter 1 is filled with understatement. Do you see that? It's filled with understatement. We, We can name several examples. I'll just name one. In verse 15, listen to what God says. In verse 16, And God made the two greater lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And the stars. Just threw it in there. God made the sun. God made the moon. Uh, uh, yeah, he, threw the, he, he, he made the stars too. All right. Y'all ready for this? I just, want, I just want to talk to you a second about how praiseworthy God is. All right? Talking about the stars. If you could travel at the speed of light, fastest speed we know of. Any of y'all ever done that? It would be pretty cool if you did. 
All right, nobody? If you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you eight minutes to go from the earth to the sun. To go from the sun to the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, would take you at the speed of light 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross the local group, you'd have to travel at the speed of light for 2 million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, part of an even larger local supercluster, which would take you 500 million light years to cross. To cross the entire known universe would take you 20 billion light years. It is believed that there are 10 octillion stars. That's one with 29 zeros after it in our galaxy or in our universe. You know what the Bible says? God knows every single one of them by name. There's 10 octillion stars and the, the account of Genesis says, and the stars, and the stars. And the the stars. He created the stars. He created galaxies that with us and all of our ingenuity and all of our engineering, we could never send a rocket across. He created a, a universe that is so expansive that we can't even see the end of it. We have to just do it with theoretical astronomy. Like, he created, and he defines that as and the stars. But let me ask you, how else would you say it? God is so supremely glorious. God is so spectacularly beautiful. God is so absolutely overwhelmingly immense. How else would you say it than to just say, and the stars? It's too much. Vocabulary cannot be fair to it. So why would he do that? Why would he do all of this? First, I mean, Psalm 19 verse 1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Do you get the picture? Why would God make 10 octillion stars? Yeah, 10 octillion stars. Because he can. As heralds of his glory. As demonstrations of his praiseworthiness. God speaks all into existence in such great excess that it would just be as a grand theater for his glory. All of creation, you and I included, including all of the cosmic galaxy that we can't even understand. All of it exists as this giant stage, this theater upon which God proclaims and demonstrates his glory to the nations. I wrote it down like this. David's declaration is true. The heavens, though without a tongue, are yet eloquent heralds of the glory of God. In the most beautiful order of nature, silently proclaims his admirable wisdom. The complexities of the natural cycles proclaim the sovereignty of God's control. The coming of the rain, the harvest of the fruit, and the new life of spring all preach God's provision. The warming heat and blinding light of the sun displays the blazing glory of God to us visually. The expanse of the great ocean shout over and over with every crashing wave the omnipotent immensity of God. Every sunrise and every sunset speak of his unwavering faithfulness. The snow-capped mountains illustrate to us God's overwhelming majesty and daunting holiness. All of creation is heralding the glory of its creator. He is worthy of our wonder. He is due our awe. He is owed our devotion. He is infinitely glorious. This morning, church, we need to praise him. We need to praise him. God created the stars 
10 octillion of them. God created planets that we cannot even reach for the purpose of placing awe in the hearts of his people. God built a galaxy that we can't even get to the middle of for the purpose of demonstrating to his church and demonstrating to the cosmos that he is infinitely worthy of our glory to place awe in our minds and passion in our lives. This morning, are you in awe of God? Honestly, are you in awe of God? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how often we are not in awe of you. Forgive us for how often we are so casual in the way we approach you. Forgive us, Father, that we don't allow praise to be the first thing on our mind and the first thing in our hearts. Forgive us, Father, that we deny your rulership over this earth and we deny your lordship over our lives. Lord, let us be a people that submits in awe. Let us be a people with praise on our tongues. Let us be a people with awe in our hearts. God, won't you call us to greater faithfulness? Won't you move in us with your spirit? Won't you convict us of our sin? Won't you bring us and usher us into worship this morning? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, my invitation to you is, first of all, if there's never been a point in your life in which you have submitted to the Lordship of God as owner of everything, that this morning you would come forward, you would talk to Aaron, you would talk to myself, that we might walk you through the gospel that God has gloriously given to us so that we might be right with him. If you're looking for a church, we want you here. Come this morning, apply for membership, or see us after the service and express that. But more than anything, I think what I want for you this morning is to worship. To worship. To allow yourself to be in awe, to experience the rapture of this moment, and to proclaim with all of the stars of heaven and all of the galaxies that we can't see that He is infinitely and supremely glorious and worthy. Would you stand with us this morning?